I know some of you have uh, attended our church before. You're a little shocked at how early I'm up here. Uh, yes, it's time for the sermon, so uh, be, be, be glad. That's a good thing. We are aware that we have a number of people telling their stories today, baptism, and so we want to give plenty of time for that to happen uh, after my message this morning. Uh, let me just say another introductory comment or two. If you're here today and you don't understand some of the things that are happening, uh, we're going to try to explain them to you just so you can understand them as best we can. But if you still have questions, we have a website. We'd be glad to answer some questions through that uh, means if you'd like. Uh, but we're just glad that you're here today, and uh, we're very excited. Those of us who attend here regularly, uh, this is a thrill. And uh, this is more exciting than any football game people are going to be watching this afternoon, I'm telling you. Uh, this, is, this is drama in real life, drama of what God does in the lives of people like us who don't deserve to be shown grace, and yet we are in Jesus Christ. Let me just also say that if, you, if it helps you to follow what I'm saying, there are notes in our bulletin. Uh, the notes and the outline are very simple this time, and uh, some of the quotes I have there were not going to be things I'm going to draw attention to, just for your further help in explaining what we're talking about. Let's uh, bow together in prayer, then let's look into the Word of God. Lord, we are just so thrilled to be in this place, on this day, to celebrate you and to give glory to your great name. What a great God you are. And you are greatly to be praised. And Lord, if anything happens today that takes away from that, Lord, we pray that that would be the kind of thing that we would, hit, uh, that we would stop and not allow to go forward, Lord, because our greatest desire is that we would make much of you today. That people would be impressed, not with us, but with you, your amazing grace, the depth of your wondrous love, your holiness, your justice, your kindness, your goodness. Lord, surely you're a God who is worthy to be praised. Now we've asked, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might be able to understand the portion of your word that we're looking at today. We thank you, Lord, for miracles that you have performed in the past. We pray that you would even this day perform a mighty miracle in the hearts of of many people who are here today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible records a number of miracles. Now, miracles, you have to be careful how you define a miracle, I realized. You can't just uh, throw out a simple little answer. But here's one I thought was fairly accurate. Miracles actually are the less common ways of God's working. So that God's working every day, but, but miracles are a less common way that God works, and He does so in such a way as to arouse the awe and the amazement of people who hear of them and witness them. One such miracle was the transformation of a man named Saul. Uh, he was born in a city called Tarsus, which was the capital city of a Roman province called Cilicia, which is today located in modern Turkey. The amazing change in Saul's life had dramatic consequences and results. So much so that it impacted the content of the Bible that we read and use even today. It also could be said to have impacted virtually all of church history for the last 2,000 years have been affected by this one miracle. I would go on to, so far as to say that the miracle recorded in Acts chapter 9, which is what we're going to be looking at, you might want to find your way there in just a minute, but it's recorded there and two other times, three times it's recorded in the Bible, this miracle, 
regarding Saul. It's like a, a ripple on a pond that continues to move outward, spreading further and further into the lives even of 21st century people, many of whom have seen similar miracles occur in their own lives. Now, as I review this miraculous life transformation of Saul in my message this morning, and as we have opportunity to hear some of the stories of those who are going to be baptized in just a few moments immediately following this message, my prayer is that all of us will be in utter amazement. Amazement at the all-powerful, gracious, holy God who does what is humanly impossible. He brings the dead to life. He opens the blind minds of those who could not see and understand. He is the God who brings about life transformations for the glory of His name and for the praise of His honor. That's what our time is with about today. So looking, if you will, let's first of all, in, the note, in your notes, our first point is let's look at Saul's need, Saul's need of transformation. Now, Saul was born into a very religious Jewish family. And in accordance with his Hebrew ancestry, his parents, of course, chose to and valued education, giving him a religious education, but they also provided to him a Roman education and threw in there even some Greek knowledge so that his, his education was one of the finest that was offered to anyone in his generation. Matter of fact, we know through the study of the Scriptures that he had the privilege of studying under a guy named Gamaliel, who was one of the leading rabbis of that time. Saul eventually became a lawyer, and he gained the privileged position of serving as a member of the Jewish Supreme Court, known at the time as the Sanhedrin. And Paul zealously kept a list of religious rules, not just a short list, a long list of rules he meticulously kept in his zeal to attain and to gain for himself his own righteousness, to be right before God. He would do and keep all these rules. And, as if that was not enough, he also very carefully prided himself on avoiding anybody who did not keep all of those long lists of rules. He didn't want to become contaminated, in a sense, from people who were not keeping those rules. And so his zeal for the rules and the keeping of those rules led him down a path of religious extremism. The Saul we read about in Acts chapter 9 was determined to eradicate the followers of Jesus, anyone who called themselves a Christian. Look at your Bible, Pew Bible, if you have one in front of you there, page 1304, page 1304, or Acts chapter 8. Pew Bible, page 1304. In Acts chapter 8, and then we'll look at verse 3. Interesting description of Saul in terms of why he needed a life transformation. We read here, verse 3, that Saul was ravaging the church. He was entering house after house, dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. You see, Saul despised Jesus. He despised everybody who claimed to be a follower of Jesus. And his heart 
was so focused on and so determined to value and treasure the praise of other people, the aberration of other people, the approval of other people, that he did his best to impress those around him with his religious piety. I mean, he was good at it. Outwardly, he appeared devout, but inwardly, he was full of hatred. Inwardly, he was full of self-righteous pride. It would not surprise me if Paul had likely prayed to himself. I didn't say he didn't pray to God. I said he prayed to himself probably on many occasions a prayer something like this when he was in the temple courts visiting in Jerusalem. He would have said, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. And then he would list the people he was glad he was not like, including people like swindlers, unjust people, adulterers, and tax collectors who were known to be sort of like members of the mafia, people who are extremely corrupt and who are known to be criminals or criminal elements. And he said, he would go on to say, I fast twice a week and I pay tithes on all I get. So here he is. He does a lot of things that are commendable, but he did them in such a way in which it made him feel as though he was superior than those around him. And despite his rigorous rule-keeping, he missed the mark. The mark of loving God with all his heart and soul and mind and loving his neighbor as himself. Because the true standard that God set to attain righteousness is found in Matthew 5.48, when we're told that the standard that we're to attain is perfection. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Obviously, Paul did not, Saul did not make that standard as I clearly can admit to in my own life. And based on his ethnic ancestry, based on his outward performance of religious rituals that he pursued with great zeal, and his desire to keep as many of these rules as possible compared to other people around him, Saul enjoyed a false sense of assurance that he was right before God. If you had asked Saul, are you right before God? He would have said, absolutely. 100%, no question. Tragically, like many people today, yet Saul was lost and he didn't know it. He assumed that he was more deserving of God's favor than other people because he performed better than other people at keeping all these rules. Unfortunately, he was deceived. He was blind to his own moral corruption, as most of us are. Most of us do not see half of the things about ourselves that God sees, that clearly fall short of his standards. The truth was that Saul was alienated from God and cut off from the life of God. Now, in light of all that, that's his situation. That was his need for transformation. He didn't know he needed it, but he desperately needed it. Now, that brings me to my second point, Paul's experience of transformation. What happened? What was his experience that brought about this dramatic change? Well, there's some steps leading up to it, I believe, that occurred, and it includes the fact that Saul's conscience had been disturbed on a number of occasions prior to the event we're going to read about here in Acts 9. Leading up to the events in Acts 9, the various things that occurred, I believe, that were promptings on his conscience, but he ignored them and disregarded them as best he could. We read in Acts chapter 7 that 
Saul was present on the occasion in which a man named Stephen was giving a sermon or a brief speech out in public. And that sermon was cut short as during the time in which he was speaking, Stephen was stoned to death. They picked up stones and they began to literally stone him to death because the things that he was saying offended the religious leaders like Saul and others who thought that what he said was offensive. But on that occasion, before he finished speaking and before he died, Saul listened to Stephen say this amazing statement. Sensing the anger and the, and the outlandish behavior of these people, throwing the rocks at him, killing him, Stephen cried out as he was pummeled with rocks, Lord, do not hold this sin against these people. Clearly an echo of what Jesus said on the cross. And Saul witnessed on that occasion the boldness of the followers of Jesus. He also witnessed on a number of other occasions the selfless love that existed among the followers of Jesus. And years later, Paul admitted and said so that he had been, quote, kicking against the goads. You say, what are you talking about? Kicking against the goads, G-O-A-D-S. Well, it's actually a a, a metaphor or a, a representation that was fairly common in that day. A goad was a long, sharp stick used by a farmer when he's poking his ox to move and to cooperate, to do what he wants him to do. And so he's poking him in the back of the leg, like, get moving. And so Paul, Saul says, this was what was happening in me, and yet I was kicking against it. I didn't want to li- yield to what was being impressed upon me what I needed to do. As a matter of fact, Saul defiantly, defiantly refused to yield to those promptings, and he passionately pursued the role of becoming the leader, leading persecutor of the followers of Jesus. That brings us to page 1306 in your Bible and Acts chapter 9. One day, a day that Saul did not plan in advance, he did not see this coming, it was unannounced, but one day, we read this, Acts 9-1, page 1306, hope you have your Bible in front of you. Paul, Saul's life was dramatically transformed. We read, Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, and then he journeyed to Damascus. And suddenly, verse 3, a light from heaven flashed around him. The account goes on to say that Saul fell down to the ground. He immediately was blinded, unable to see. He heard a voice, and the voice said, verse 5, Saul, Saul, calling his name twice, why are you persecuting me? He replied, who are you, master? Who are you, Lord? He's blind now. He has no clue what's going on. Answer came, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Wow. That stopped him in his tracks in a dramatic fashion. You see, the Jesus that Saul would have likely had he been there, he would have likely demanded that he be put to death on that cross and crucified, was the Jesus that was alive had been raised from the dead and was speaking to him on that moment, confronting him with what he was doing regarding the followers of Jesus. All of 
Saul's pretentious piety was of no value the moment that the sinless Son of God, who knows everything that everyone has ever said or done or thought, stopped Saul in his tracks. And so Saul, at that moment, didn't know what to do. He was led by others into the city, as you read there in Acts chapter 9, and when he met up there, with a follower of Jesus called Ananias. He was told to go meet this guy, Ananias. Now, I would not have wanted to be Ananias. Ananias was given directives by God that he was supposed to go and meet with this guy named Saul. Now, put yourself in his shoes. If you were to have done that, you would say, well, I'm going to go talk to this guy who had just been, what, breathing threats against and murder against anybody who followed Jesus. You want to go talk to this guy face to face? He's probably pulling a ploy is what you'd begin thinking maybe. Claiming to be blind, next thing you know he's got you arrested and he's going to put you to death. But nonetheless, Ananias was reluctant to meet with him, which gives what? Credence to the historical reliability of what we're reading here. It's not a made-up story. This does make sense. And Ananias ministered to Saul. He spoke to him, clarified what was going on, what is God's plan for his life. And not only was Saul's physical eyesight restored. But more significantly, Saul's spiritual eyes were opened for the first time. Saul repented of his sin, of trusting in all of his own performance of good deeds. And he called upon God to deliver him on the basis of Jesus' atoning death on the cross, to deliver him from damnation, which he acknowledged he deserved because he had done many wicked things. He was convicted by the things that he had done, which he began to sense was wrong before God. He stopped making excuses. He stopped thinking that he was better than other people and comparing himself. He humbly acknowledged his sin to Jesus and acknowledged his need to be saved. And Saul, the religious zealot, an angry opponent of Christianity. Look at this in page 1307, verse 18. We read, Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on the apostles' hands. And he, I'm sorry, in the wrong verse, nine, uh, 9, verse 18, he says, Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight. He arose and was baptized. My friend, that is a miracle. What's amazing about this is that the water into which Saul was immersed did not change him one bit. Saul was baptized to signify that his heart had been changed. That what was happening to him was an internal transformation. And he no longer defiantly opposed Jesus. He was now signifying in his baptism that he had had a change of heart and a change of allegiance. And he now was saying, I'm fully devoted to Jesus Christ, my Master, my Lord. And his baptism signified, as he wrote elsewhere in his writings years later, that he was a new creation. The old was gone and the new had come. His old life and the old allegiances, the old things that he used to value in trying to attain his own righteousness, he said, that's done away with. I now am embracing Jesus Christ and what he did for me on the cross. Paul went on to also write years later. He says that 
he went on to say, I now am living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, Saul wrote, years later. This was the dramatic change in transformation. And that leads us now to our third point. Saul's evidence of transformation. The text goes on to indicate that Saul's behavior changed immediately. His life did what you would call a 180. It was dramatically turned around in a different direction. He stopped persecuting Christians. He began to proclaim that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. His hatred for Jesus turned into reverence for Jesus Christ. And soon thereafter, life did not get easier for him. You need to understand this. It's not as if when he had this dramatic change in his life, now everything was just smooth sailing off into the far frontier. Because as you read through the text, it's clear in Acts 9, 27, 28, there's other places, it's clear that soon thereafter he began to receive death threats immediately from people who were probably what? His former cohorts. People who also were keeping all those rules. People who, who could not stand to see somebody now jump to the other side and make much of Jesus. It was threatening to them. But nothing dissuaded him from boldly speaking out in the name of the Lord. Turn to page 1325 in your pew Bible. Acts 20, verse 19. 1325. Acts 20, verse 19. Is this the same guy that we read about earlier who was breathing threats against the followers of Jesus? He's, we read here, 20, verse 19, that Saul served the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to him through the plots of the Jews. Life got really hard for him because of his strong stand he took for Jesus. He became now one of those who were hated because of his devotion to Jesus Christ. The person who at one time had sought to eradicate churches and eradicate Christians had become a passionate now missionary who worked tirelessly to establish new churches among the large pagan cities of the Roman Empire. You see, Saul began to use at this time in his life, as time moved on, he got more and more involved in trying to see other people know Jesus. He switched names. His given first name, Saul, after the first king of Israel, he now assumed and began to use his middle name, which is a Roman name, Paulus. Because as a Roman name, he would identify with now people who were Roman citizens in the far reaches of the Roman Empire as he moved out away from the Jewish base into all over the big cities. He now was called Paul, which I kept saying his name throughout this message, got confused. But anyway, same guy, Saul, Paul, same guy. The point is, he wanted to increase his effectiveness in being a messenger with the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone, including, particularly, Roman Gentile citizens. And the people that Paul used to avoid, he now was selflessly serving, bringing them the gospel of Jesus Christ, declaring that Jesus crucified, buried, risen, and coming again is the only hope for true Life transformation, having a personal relationship with him and trusting him by faith alone. Let me draw this to a conclusion here just by, again, directing you to think about Paul's 
own words, Saul's words, Paul's words, same guy. And turn in your Bible again to 1409, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Saul went from a person who prided himself on how good he was compared to other people to a person who now saw himself entirely differently through the clarity of the Holy Spirit's conviction and the clear teachings of Scripture. One of the themes that Paul began to proclaim wherever he went, after he was baptized, after his conversion, after his dramatic transformation, the miracle that God uh, brought in his life in Acts chapter 9 recorded there, the theme that he continued to declare was the undeserved favor that he had received from God through Jesus Christ. He realized he did not deserve to be treated with forgiveness and given the gift of eternal life. He didn't deserve it because of all of his many sins and offending God. And that's why when Paul introduced himself and he compared himself to other apostles, he said years later, I am what I am, as is, as is I'm an apostle. I am an apostle by the grace of God. I don't deserve to be an apostle. I was putting to death the followers of Jesus. And so he never got tired of declaring, look at the greatness of God's grace. Undeserved favor shown to us in Christ. Now here we are in this text I want you to know here is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. Now listen to what Paul's testimony was. This is toward the latter part of his life now, many years hence after this event in Acts 9. Paul says this, I was formerly, looking back on my life, when I was Saul, going around Saul, I was formerly a blasphemer. I'm sure he said some horrendous things about Jesus that he deeply regretted. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. He probably had a big temper too. And yet I was shown mercy. Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And may I say to you, all of us have been there. We all have acted ignorantly when we did not believe in Jesus. We've all thought we were better than other people before we knew Jesus. We all, like Saul, thought ourselves as, well, I'm not as bad as that guy, so therefore I'm going to give a little bit of a break. We've all had those kind of thoughts. But he says, that was when I was ignorant. I didn't know any different. But he says, the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. Why would he say that? Because he realized the huge, the huge amount of sin that he had committed against the holy God. He realized, I need huge grace to cover all of my huge sin. He was convicted about that. All the things he did against so many people in the name of his religious zeal. And he said, the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus is what gave him hope. It is a trustworthy statement. He says, you can count on this, he says. You can take this to the bank. It deserves full acceptance by anybody and everybody. Jesus Christ came into the world to what? To save sinners. He says, among whom I am foremost of all. What a transformation. What a miracle. He went from being a person who prided himself on being better than pretty much anybody around him to being a person who's what? Giving thanks for the grace of Jesus Christ, saying, I am the worst sinner of all. Then he goes on to say, I found mercy in order that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate what? His perfect obedience. It is Jesus who is the one who's perfectly obedient. He's the one who has righteousness, not we. We don't have righteousness. We have sin. It is Christ who has righteousness. We trust in him and his righteousness given to us as a gift. And our sin is placed on Christ. And when Paul understood that good news, my friend, he could not stop talking about it to anybody and everybody. 
And he said, what happened to me is an example of those, for those who would believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. Please note a couple things here. According to 1 Timothy 1, believing in Christ is how one obtains eternal life, not by being baptized. Baptism doesn't change anything about anybody. It just makes you wet. Messes up your hair, too. But Paul says, believing in Christ is where eternal life is to be found. And see, Paul went on and he boasted never again on his good works. You'll never find Paul saying, I'm so thankful I'm not like that guy over there. He was aware that his actions had brought about unjust suffering, so so many people, imprisonments and deaths, so many humble, godly disciples of Jesus Christ, among many other sins that he committed, so that he boasted from there on in the cross of Jesus Christ. He preached Christ crucified. He proclaimed the good news that if you confess with your mouth Christ Jesus as Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead, he says you will be saved. He didn't say anything about baptism. He says believe and confess Jesus as Lord. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is the testimony of a man who is miraculously transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we once again are so impressed as we read the details surrounding Saul's dramatic transformation. But Lord, as exciting and amazing as all that is, we know that there are other people among us today who have a very similar story. People who are sinners, blind, in denial, kicking against the goads of the Holy Spirit's promptings. People who are arrogantly looking down at other people saying, well, I'm not as bad as they are, and so therefore I'm sure I'm going to be given a break when I get to heaven someday. People who have no interest in Jesus, thinking that they just need to improve themselves or denying that it's important for Jesus in any way at all and hating him. Whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you, you would remind us today of the power of the gospels of Jesus Christ to transform people, that we might once again see more clearly, Lord, through our baptisms today and through this example of Saul, that there is hope for every single one of us. How we thank you, Father, that there is hope for those of us who have offended you so many times. There's hope for us who feel the weight of our sin, who look and long for cleansing from sin and to have eternal life. We thank you for Jesus Christ, that he came to seek and to save those who were lost. We thank you that in him we can have eternal life, that he was the one who was obedient, that he's the one who died for our sin, that we might be truly forgiven and granted the privilege of being adopted as sons of God. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here today, that they might leave today, Lord, not kicking against the goads, but that they might sense that there is good news being proclaimed in many different ways today. I pray that they might humbly turn to Jesus even this day and know the wonderful life transformation that comes when we repent of our sins and place our faith in Christ and enjoy the wonder of knowing Christ and serving Christ and seeing Jesus Christ change us from the inside out. We pray, O oh Father, you would do a mighty work. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.